Hello, and welcome to the Architect Debt Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Brady. Architect Debt is a podcast that illuminates the lesser heard stories of Women Plus in architecture and related fields. On today's episode of Architect Debt, I am delighted to welcome Erin Alley. Erin is an associate principal partner at RMW and is based in their San Francisco office. Erin and I worked together on several projects during my tenure at RMW, but most of them were confidential, so we won't be able to talk about those. But I was so happy to interview her so that you all can learn more about her career journey and experiences. Erin is an outstanding project manager, studio leader, and mentor. Today, we talk about Erin's start in architecture and how she ended up working on the client side of the industry at Gap. We then talk about her thoughts on work-life balance, motherhood, career coaches, and the importance of getting licensed. Next, we shift to Erin's leadership at Gensler and later RMW. She shares tips for supporting clients, connecting with colleagues, and maintaining a healthy, engaging work environment. Erin also shares more about the accessible dwelling unit that her family added in her backyard, which is basically a tiny house for her dad. We end by talking about Erin's hopes for the future and how she is working at RMW to embrace emerging design technologies and increase diversity in the profession. Links to learn more about RMW, Erin's accessory dwelling unit, and other topics we cover will be in the show notes. Before we start, I also want to give a quick shout out to all of my friends at RMW. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all are doing well. And if you'd like to support the show, make sure to leave a review, follow on podcast platforms and social media, and join our mailing list at architectdebt.com. Let's jump in. Enjoy the episode. Erin, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Caitlin. This is terrific. How did you get involved in architecture? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, people have asked that before, and it's kind of the typical answer probably for a lot of people. And it sounds maybe a little different. Early age, I think like four or five years old, there are photos that show this, but I was truly the, I call it the dollhouse generation plus Lincoln Logs and Fisher Price Little People and taking shoe boxes and tagging them on and taking crayons and coloring it, making a little furniture. And the main reason was I loved spaces and I still love spaces. Then I liked mini spaces. And in junior high and high school, I still loved it. And so I really wanted to continue it. And so I took drafting. And in high school, they actually almost, as I recollect, didn't let me take drafting. They, they had a requirement of home ec and my mom got me out of it. And so that worked and I continued on and continued to do architecture, apply to, I think, all the schools, except for the one I went to in architecture for like a dopey reason. My dad and I just couldn't find it on the UC Berkeley application. And I started in civil engineering, but quickly tracked back and, and went into the College of Environmental Design, and it was great. So you went to both undergrad and grad programs for architecture? Yes, I did. You know, I went to Berkeley, undergraduate, uh, graduated in architecture, and knew that I would also do a master's, just in a kind of a complementary school. And But I thought maybe I'll work in between for a year and get a job at a firm in San Francisco, and I, and I had high hopes, but it was a recession. And nobody would hire me. Uh, they said, oh, you know, we have people with 15 years of experience being, you know, design director, CAD jockey. So sorry. So I did fabric design, but then I went back to graduate school in architecture and got a master of architecture at Arizona. It was much more technical, so it was kind of complementary 
to the very theoretical design at Cal. Mm-hmm. And so after that, you ended up at Gap. Was that your first job out of college or out of grad school? <laughs> no, no, there was, I actually worked at, it was such an easy time. So just like there was a recession after my undergraduate in Arizona, first of all, different region of the country, kind of a boom market and just did cold calls, walked in off the street and like saw some firms and, hey, do you want me to work here? And was offered a job and that's how it worked. And so I worked at uh, one place that's no longer in existence, Knoyer Hedrick, met my partner there actually. And then we both left like a year later and I worked for a smaller boutique hotel, high-end residential firm called Oz Architects. And that was lovely. And then decided to try to work at the Gap. What was that transition like going from a typical architecture firm then to the, I'll say the more client side of things? It was, it was kind of, um, it was amazing. So my husband called it after I'd been working there for a little while, country club working. And it was, you know, I did it for a reason, you know, at the time. And I I liked working in the architecture firm, but I knew that if we were going to be in California and, you know, the pay scale was such, wasn't married yet, was about to get married, probably wanted to have kids, was on the cusp of that. And I wanted some time for myself. And I was like, you know, I would like to do that in 40 hours a week. And at the time, working at corporate architecture and construction at Gap seemed to afford that. And it was also a dream job. You know, it was the marriage of fashion and architecture. And so it was a no brainer for me. I'm like, oh, this is so great. There's sample sales and you know, the building has a pool and a green roof. I mean, McDonough did the building. It's it's now the home of YouTube. So it was pretty awesome in that respect. And you also felt like you had really strong commander agency over what you were doing because architecture was a tiny piece of like retail, right? So it's this own little microcosm. And you also felt you were part of a bigger thing. You know, I guess selling jeans is a bigger thing, but they did have a lot of philanthropy. But there was a downside. That was that I was not part, truly part of the design work. You you had consultants who came and worked with you, but you weren't physically doing it that often. So it was more of as an editor, I guess. And I actually had three different, I would say, roles during my 13 years there. I started off in corporate architecture, and I was a project manager, and I traveled the country and honestly the world doing like punch lists and worked doing a lot of CA and check-ins, like checking the construction management. And I also oversaw um, different folks doing the CD. So it was a, kind of a technical side of the role. And then they opened up, uh, and that was fun, you know, in in a way. And then I realized I didn't want to travel. I uh, had a son at that point. And after my last trip to Shanghai, I was like, I'm going to try to be around a little bit more. And so I got offered a job in store design for kids and baby and, and new concept design. And that was super fun. And I was design director for that. And then Gap was having some challenges. And they condensed, and I eventually took on design direction for all the brands for, I I called it hypothetical new stores. And what we would do is we'd massage and come up with these new concepts, and they'd make templates and roll them out. So I wasn't really on the rollout side. My partner at the time, my office partner, was doing that. So it was a tight group. Mm -hmm. Do you think that 
working at Gap was better at the time of like when you became a mother and you were balancing yeah. outside of work obligations and work obligations compared to an architecture firm? Yes. I saw, I mean, I saw, you know, my husband, my partner going through the long hours at the firm side. I still had friends that did that from school. And, and I saw, unfortunately, that, and it would follow, you know, it, it was many cases, women where either they hadn't gotten married or maybe got married, didn't have kids, or they were just haggard, like they had no time outside uh, and they worked long. I mean, they did. Like, I worked till 9.30 last night. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, you have a small child. It's, I don't know how they did it. And there weren't, there weren't that many examples. You know, even people that were older than me and role models of like, oh yeah, I, I did that all. And, and somebody that was, that was pretty supportive. And, you know, honestly, even for me, I still ended up getting a divorce. Fun fact, we did get back together, but it's hard. The profession can be hard. Even in-house, it was hard. Mm-hmm. Did you have a lot of female role models when you worked at Gap? Yes, at the Gap, I did. Their president of Gap Brand was Marka Hansen, and the president of Banana Republic. There had so many women leaders that were really supportive and, well, honestly, knew you, took the time to know you, and understood that balance. So it was great, and they did, they did great work. After you finished your tour working on the client side of things, what made you decide to flip back then into architecture? Two things. A, I, I mentioned it earlier, there was a missing thing of fulfillment of having a little more hands-on control of the design. You know, we'd, we'd have architects on staff that were working on it, but wouldn't be taking it all the way through and it would just show up and you'd you know, go to the, the store and less and less of that. In addition to the fact that I saw the department in like Gap, you know, was having its struggle times, and I said, you know, it's a luxury to have for them to have in-house store design architecture. I think I better get my resume cleaned up and go somewhere else. And so, back my department after I left did go away, so the timing was right. And Gensler was the architect of record for a lot of the stores dating back to 1969. So. I knew folks there and I asked them and, you know, I, I remember talking to friends like, you're going to go back to architecture. No one's going to hire you. You're not licensed yet. Like, you know, all of those things. I'm like, well, I, I sure am going to try to go back. And they were kind enough to offer me a job as a project manager and bring me in as client relationships and that side of it. I know you just mentioned that you didn't have your license until a little bit later. What was that? Was it harder to get it to study for your tests later in life? Not later in life, oh. midlife. <laughs> so I rebooted. I rebooted three times or four times. I think my rolling clock expired uh. like three times. I can't tell you. I think I started version 3.1 or something. I don't know. But started, passed a couple rolling clocks. I was still at Gap and I'm like, I'm going to take this seriously. And he was maybe... I don't know, two, and I was like, I'm going to do it again. wasn't working. So then I, I didn't, I didn't do it. And even that was at Gensler for some time and I didn't do it until somebody said to me, I think it was our managing partner of our office said, you just, you have to get your license. <laughs> and he meant it in a very positive way. Like if you want to be in a senior associate or a principal, you should be licensed. And I, he could see that. So I got my act together and I did it. And it, and it wasn't hard super late because, you know, after decades 
of not doing it. It's when you are older, you do have the time again. At that point, you know, I had a 14 year old, you know, it was very different and easier to study. You, you have that time. And, and I actually like taking tests, but I recommend that nobody waits that long. I had enough people warning me when I got out of school, just like get it done as quick as you can. Because as I approached kind of this midlife where marriage and kids and blah, 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 and all these things are kind of on the horizon for me, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I took the the lead BD plus C test during the pandemic, and that was a very huge burden to study for that. And I wasn't going anywhere. I had nothing to do. I had no place to go. And it was still like, oh my gosh, so much. No, I am totally with you, you know, of all the things, and especially as women get the license. And now I'm trying to get licenses in different states. I've got the income. Now I feel like I'm just going to chop Arizona, New York, you know, now it's just a thing, but I, I think it's important. My gosh. Now that you have California out of the way, I mean, that's, that's the big one. It is. Yeah. With the supplemental exam. Yeah. Exactly. Well, congratulations on getting that out of the way. But I hear you, people, they wait too long. Most people don't do it. The ARC, I don't know the statistics, but I think the ARC drops way off and people are like, why do I need it? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, don't you, if you ever want to have your own sole proprietorship or be a partner and you're assigning principal, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. It also helps to bump your salary to, yes. to get that. I mean, yes. I got licensed in Pennsylvania and then I applied for jobs in California. I doubled my salary. Yep. It is such a true fact and it is so key. And you tell people that, and I think they look at me sideways when I say that, but it, it adds value to your pocketbook. It does. It also doesn't put a cap on your career progression because exactly. you can keep going and yep. it's kind of like, listen, I've done the work, I have the paperwork and it helps an employer go, okay, they check that box and they're eligible for elevation and all of that. Yeah. And not that licensure doesn't mean that you are a great designer, but if you don't have it, you may never get that seat at the table to do it. And I do thank that managing partner principal that told me. I know that you had had a career coach at one point. Do you think that having a career coach is something that's beneficial to your progression? Yeah, I do. I think it is. You know, it was a gift to me first. Long story. It was gifted of like, here are some ways to smooth things over and learn how to use inquiry and language to build consensus and collaboration. And it was the person they assigned was the most lovely, lovely coach. And I continued after leaving that role. I just, I kept her on. I'm like, I mean, it's worth every shekel I have to continue with her. And, you know, in a way it helps not just on the professional level, but, but personal too. There's crossover. My mom passed away. My dad moved in with us. We built him a home. She coached in that direction too. And had it all the way through the pandemic, but she was always on point with how to be strategic, how to win work and partner, how to represent yourself. And I do think it's important. And a lot of times it's gating. It's again, it's another gating thing because you often pay for whether you call it a life coach, a professional development coach, et cetera. But you can also find mentors that aren't paid. So I think, and, and people are willing to give their time, especially in the spaces that we are now and how people network and get together. I think it is important to have an impartial person that guides you and it's key at any stage. You, you don't all of a sudden age out of it and you don't need one. Anymore. I think you might even need it more. 
Oh, that's great advice. I think often some people find themselves becoming a mentor and then they might go, oh, now I'm a mentor. I don't need any type of advice for myself anymore. But I agree. It's throughout your whole career. It's it's helpful to just have guidance and direction and someone to keep you on path or even encourage you to step off the path. Step off the path too. You're totally, totally right. And actually this coach did tell me to slow it down at one point and said, hey, you, you need to step off and just kind of take a break, you know, for your own health and mental state. And I listened because if it's, again, if it's impartial, you, you take that not with a grain of salt, like sometimes you do if it's some with a family member or friend and they tell you, you sometimes you don't listen. And lifelong learning, we're learning our whole lives, or at least I hope we all are. And I think, you know, maybe it's not true, but I do think women are naturally maybe a little bit more inquisitive and curious, or maybe we're given permission to just instead of being like tellers, uh, that's an upside that you can ask a lot of questions continuously. It's the key. It's the key to life, actually, because, you know, a lot of people I do think, and in our profession, too, and maybe where it all came from, like, architects are expected to know the answer. Like, you guys will come, what do you tell us? Tell us the thing. And there's that kind of command and presence, and a lot of people in the profession do that. Well, you should do this, and here are your options. But getting there through inquiry, we're doing it more and more in the profession, which is great. Yes. I remember a couple times that we have been on projects together. And I was always impressed with your, I don't know how to, like, I would just say like client management skills or handling skills where we would be in a conversation and it would kind of be spiraling because everyone's throwing ideas in the pot and everyone's stirring and like, it's, it's just a mess. And you would just have this very like calm, peaceful kind of just like wading through, like, I don't know, Moses or something, you know, like coming through and just separating it. and. And you would just be like, okay, this is what I'm hearing. You know, you would kind of synthesize all of the information and then settle it down. And then we were able to proceed forward because you had this like calming presence. And I, I was wondering if you had any other tips of client management skills that you've picked up along the way. Well, first of all, thank you. That's, that's very sweet. And I didn't really know that uh, I do that maybe necessarily, but maybe I do because, and I appreciate the kudos, back when I was a client, and, you know, it would be chaos and cacophony and all these things going on and people throwing in ideas. All I wanted was for the architect that was working, not for me, but with me, my partner on the project back when I was a cap, to have my back a little bit and, and make me maybe look good to my senior folks. And I always have kept that in mind. On the other side of like, you know, there are all kinds of solutions. There's many ways to come up with something. And I, I believe that architects rest back on their heels and say, the code, the code, the code. Sure, it is true. But your client wants you to take that and massage it and work in and options to, to make it work for them, too. Because it's also, you know, their project and ultimately their money. And you want it to meet code you know, we have to, that's our responsibility to be compliant, but we don't have to put that face forward, right? We don't have to say like, oh, didn't you already know this? Like many times I'll be in meetings, like the other architects saying that, I'm like, they didn't know that because they hired us to help them figure it out. So let's make them look good and solve their problems. Maybe that's what I do. I put that, I put that lens on, or I put that, those headphones on or whatever you want to call it. And I put, I look at it both ways. 
I think that's great to make your client look good. Often it's us versus them. Sometimes that's the perspective. Whereas it's so much more complex than that, where they are answering to their boss, who's answering to the stakeholders. It's a much more complex issue than I think that we sometimes think about. So now that you're working at RMW, can you talk a little bit about how you came to RMW? I know you joined in the fall of 2019, and then chaos ensued in a couple months later. What was it like starting at the firm? And I also am wondering, when you came, was there an agreed upon path to leadership? Because I know you ascended to leadership very quickly, or was that something that just naturally happened? You know, I think maybe it was maybe in some folks' minds' eye or they were looking. I do know that they had been looking. But for me in particular, I I believe it was the right timing more than anything. There was a project. In fact, the project you and I worked on, it was retail mixed use. And that was my sweet spot. And they really needed somebody to come in. And I really needed to leave my current job. I was not necessarily looking to rise to leadership. I actually was kind of looking for a break. Oops. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But but that's pretty funny. But yeah, so I I think it wasn't like strong negotiations or anything like that. I was just open and and things evolved and I was just listening and I just, you know, wanted to move to a smaller organization that was a little more transparent. And so what was it like joining an organization right before an unprecedented global pandemic? It was, so I freaked out, like, because I mean, right? I mean, you, you're like, okay, I'm pretty okay where I am. I've been there for seven plus years, doing fine. And then it's like, oh no, I'm going to be the first person that they tell me to stay home when we went home, right? I'm like, how? And then I thought, okay, it's one thing about the livelihood, but he gets, how am I going to meet everyone? I'm a people person. And if I had any inklings, you know, after four or five months, you know, I really, Loved working with the president, Stan Lu. He's a wonderful person. So I'm like, how do I do this so I can stay and get to know more people? And they had pivoted to doing things. I mean, you actually helped do it. You helped pivot one of the big things, which were the virtual breakfasts that had not been virtual. And we did them all. So there were opportunities. I think there was a coffee chat. There were bingos. There were games. There were studio meetings, whatever. So I joined, I mean, to quote a funny movie, everything all the time at once. I'm like, I'll just say yes. I will be on anything that anyone in RMW and any office is on that I'm invited to lunch and learn. I'm on it. (laughs) I'm there. And just try to get people to know my name. Yeah, that's so important. The firm that I'm at right now, I joined totally remote and have been kind of traveling nomadically for the last six months or so. Uh, Actually, it's actually coming up on a year that I've been nomadic. And it's so tough to get to know people outside of if you're just working on a project. So that's, I started doing like this kind of where it's where the podcast came from is I got this idea when I started interviewing different people throughout the firm, but it's so tough. Well, and you have the right personality for it too, in terms of just getting to know, and when you told me, I mean, even though I was heartbroken that you were leaving, we're, you know, RMW, we're together. I understood what you were doing and I'm like, oh, she's going to go so far with so many different things on the horizon. Who knew this was going to be one of them, but. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not me. Well, that, it it kind of came from not being tethered to a geographic location because in San Francisco, I was involved in, you know, AIA San Francisco, the Bay Area, Young Architects, lots of RMW things. 
But then as I was moving around, I didn't have the opportunity to join something in person. So I was like, maybe I just take all of my, like these little interviews that I have been doing, reach out to more people and then now we're chatting. Right? I know. And then Patricia, who we worked with at Studio MLA, has also this. She's like, I'm going to be on the podcast with Caitlin. And I'm like, she is out there. And everyone's, it's, it's quite a buzz. So I know that's my problem is that I have so many people I want to interview and I can't edit quick enough because editing takes a really long time. It's like hours editing. So after you joined RMW, you know, you talked about meeting people, joining project teams, working on pulling projects in. Did you strategize of of how you're planning your career growth? How did you navigate that? How did you advocate for yourself? Yeah, it's the organization that I'm at in the first place. It's it's pretty flat. RMW prides itself on being, you know, pretty hands-on. They have a method for growth and, and for, you know, appointments, how they've done it. You know, they've been around for over 50 years. So they're pretty they're good about it. And they're really open organization. So it wasn't like any secrets or anything. And it, I think it ended up for, I know, at least for a few months of just asking questions. Like, what does this look like? Again, back to our inquiry. Like, would it be possible? I had been a senior associate prior. What does ownership, leadership look like here? And I think I asked a couple of folks um, or in that role and, you know, they kind of described it and also with like no pressure. Like it was just very, you know, just do good work, you know, try to bring in some work. It was very subtle and kind of the way I think the profession should be. It wasn't cutthroat. It wasn't like there was like three other people vying for that role. Like it just wasn't that. I mean, I did, I do think they were careful and rightfully so because you usually want somebody to move up in a firm that's been there for a long time and groom them and they're ready. And I think they've had, it was just a time gap where they didn't have maybe that person in the architecture in San Francisco at the time. And so I, I filled it, filled a niche. So I just, you know, asked the question, could I, is it possible? I think I'm qualified. Have you ever come across someone who doubted that you could achieve the dreams that, that you had voiced? Yeah, so, yeah, and but I still probably listen to this podcast. But uh, so my husband partner, you know, he's my biggest advocate too. But he was, I think, the primary person that when I said, hey, "Oh, I think I'm going to go back to architecture," you know, he's like, "What?" Like I was like, "You're going to do what?" Like knowing, and I think he said it not because he didn't think I was qualified. He just knew that I I wasn't going to be able to handle the pay cut that was going to come, I, or mentally prepared for the pay cut that was going to happen when I did that. And when they did tell me an offer and I went, is that missing a zero? Is it missing a one? Like what's going on? And it was drastic. Was it like tens of thousands of dollars or? Half. Okay. So it was like a pretty big chunk. I know. But my dad said, it'll come. If you love something, the money does come. And if you love it, don't, don't put that first. And I believe, I believe that. And I, I do, I don't put it first. I know your dad's a pretty shrewd businessman. He is. So that, that's good advice. You were studio director for a portion of time at RMW, largely during the pandemic years. So during that time, what was your strategy in terms of leading and energizing and empowering the people that you work with to both keep them happy at the firm, but also keep 
folks on the track feeling that that they're progressing and, and have a place at the firm? If I look back, I mean, I think in some ways I did that. Honestly, I think I could have done better. I mean, I didn't, we did lose some people, you being one of them, but I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so could have done a better job just letting people know how valuable they are, you know, and then maybe that came across. I mean, we had an appointment that year, but I think sometimes it's too late or not enough. And, you know, had some really great people leave. That was a really a wake up call right during that period it was, was that it was actually 2021, right? 2021. I left in 2022, but I know that power players at the firm, it, they were being poached. I mean, recruiters were constantly in our inboxes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was so bad. I mean, the fact going back to the client architecture side, clients came for people, right? So, and that's hard going back to the money. So it is just those of us that were in that role, you know, me included, tried really hard to remind everyone that it is that culture of RMW that, again, during the pandemic, it didn't go away, but any new folks probably didn't see it as strongly. And then it maybe got a little wobbly. I think it's back and better than ever now. So we have a new office in San Francisco. Yes, I think the photos are coming out soon. I saw on social media. You'll have to come by. Oh, I know. The only thing to answer your question, maybe, back to it, is... I had one-on-ones with every single person in the studio and decided to put that into play. And just like, and it, that, I mean, you think like, oh, half an hour, once a month, that should be doable. And it's totally doable. So at least, you know, there's no set agenda, what's on everybody's mind. And maybe you can learn a little bit more about what's making people tick and where their career goals are. Are they happy in the project? Where are their pain points? What do they need? Mm-hmm. What are some things that you learned from those sessions that you didn't expect? I think people really open up a lot. I think somebody in my career one time chastised me for doing those, not current place, but prior. They're like, what are you telling secrets in those meetings? It's like, no, it's just like people feel better one-on-one really expressing themselves. Once you add the third person, somebody clams up. It's just natural. And so, you know, I learned people's, you know, anywhere from not having confidence and saying they didn't have that, not liking to be on video and seeing their faces, that they didn't like a certain project type. Of course, relationships. I don't work well with this person. This person is calling me out. You know, all of those things that while you can't always address them immediately, it is a job, you you pack it away and say, okay, that's in here about this person and then another things and you try to just over time keep all of those virtual notes and put them together when a new project comes up or a new way to satisfy it and and you know or give support or training or tools or confidence building and just listening and remembering in the next conversation where you were and hoping you addressed at least a bit of that so, you know, you know, it doesn't carry on like a, had another one-on-one and we didn't talk about your, you know, PTO. So mm-hmm. I think that's so important because if you're just going on and off of calls on Zoom or Teams or whatever, some teams chit-chat a little bit in the beginning, but if there's so many people on the call, it's kind of weird. So to have that one-on-one time is if someone doesn't physically see you in the office, it's a way that they can reach out to you and really get that contact time. 
Exactly. And, and especially for a lot of people that are junior or even mid-career, there was this thing, oh, here's a, we have teams. It's like, we, and to use teams, you actually have to call or use the chat or reach out. It took a while for people to feel like they could do that. Like they're waiting, they're waiting for somebody to call them. Mm-hmm. I know. I felt that when we did the first season of interns at RMW during the pandemic, and then I'd find that someone was just kind of sitting there like, well, I don't know what to do. And I don't know who to call. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how long have you been sitting there? And they're like all day. I'm like, oh, like, okay, just reach out. Or you have to schedule call-ins a little bit more frequent to be like, hey, everything you doing? Okay, great. Okay. We'll keep you rolling or you're stuck on this. Let's solve it. And it, it takes that initiative of reaching out a little bit more when it's virtual. Totally, totally, and hopefully less virtual. We owe it to our communities to go back to our cities, partially. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to tell a lot of people in San Francisco that because downtown is not what it used to be. I know, I know. London Breed was on the news yesterday. I know it's not. I also forgot to ask you, too, thinking of downtown made me think of some of the, the Gensler projects that you worked on downtown. Can you talk about maybe over your career, what are some of your favorite projects that you've worked on? And uh, what type of buildings are they? I mean, I, lo- I love them all. <laughs> it's like saying, which are your favorite kids? I don't know. I, like, I love them all for different reasons, even the ones that were very challenging uh, along the way. I love some of the prototype gap stores that we did. I still love them, except I don't think any of them are still maybe fourth and market Old Navy. But other than that, you know, with Gensler, fantastic department store in Mexico City, El Palacio de Hero. You know, it's a huge project. We did it mostly remotely with the New York office. It was pretty awesome. Got to work on a gazillion soul cycles, and that was fun. I mean, it really fun because it was in its heyday. Chase Center had so many architects and engineers because there were so many different parts. And so project I got to work on were a fair amount, a bunch of buildings on Terry Francois Boulevard and up on the Esplanade, not the arena, nor the interiors of the re- arena, but the corn shell ground up that kind of flanked it, which was fun to do that and be a part of that. That was a great project because, boy, that was uh, intense and fast. They did a pretty amazing job. And worked on a major repositioning project in Union Square, which I'm hoping that whole area will come back into a boom time because it's quiet. And, you know, and then, you know, recently, I mean, honestly, worked with you on some of them, but can't say that. Oh, no, yeah. My favorite project can't go back 10 years. We got to have some projects that we can post and talk about. Overall, you've already made a huge impact at RMW. What what future impacts do you hope to make at the firm and the, in the profession beyond that? Oh, that's, that's sweet. I, um, I hope I've made impacts. I think definitely some contributions, 100%. I hope there's two things. I guess I have to be super like specific I hope in design technology that, so ironically, I head up the design technology group. So Brian is, is my man. But can you believe that? So he, you know, you'd think he might actually report to somebody that really knows Revit, but I don't think it's just about Revit. I think it's about understanding what's coming still in design technology and that, the, the tools, and in all seriousness, we better be prepared for what's coming. And it's going to be a huge wave because the building technology and construction is the next wave because, right, we've already been through the communication and now there's the whole vehicles and, 
you know, maybe automation and all that. But the next wave is how we design and deliver buildings is going to radically change. And so we should be open and reading and, you know, machine learning, AI. I mean, forget virtual reality. I mean, this is like, it, it, this is about really putting something in to the widget and it comes out. Like these things people use to do space plans over and over again, iterations. That's not going to be done by us. So I just hope at RMW to listen and learn to the experts and keep, you know, an ear to the grindstone about what's happening and getting out there and how to bring it in and introduce it and test and try like an R&D department. And then other side part, and RMW is pretty good about this and I hope to continue on on all the projects, you know, beyond LEAD, it's making a really a positive impact on the planet with really great people that are that care and are passionate. And we have a lot of those people because they really, really want to do the right thing. Climate action plan committee, zero net carbon, all of that, super important. Like it's so important. I mean, my ADU, I touched on it on my own outside of my professional life. That's almost a passive house. Not quite, but almost. Oh, yeah. I don't think we really touched on that too much. The ADU, for people who don't know, is an accessible dwelling unit. Can you talk a little bit about just what that is, where it is? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in our backyard. And California passed a bill several years back, not that long ago, that actually said, hey, you get everyone can have two units. Oh, by the way, now they can have four. Um, and they, you know, decrease setbacks, timing in order to get the permit, all of that good stuff so that we could increase the housing stock. So the housing element in every city and town needs to go like this, such a, you know, diversity, equity, you know, all that whole thing, displacement, it's so important. So my mom died, fast forward, my dad was by himself. Not a bad thing, but, you know, asked, hey, do you want to pull our resources? We bought a property, had a house built in the backyard that's made of SIP panels, and it's a heat pump, and there's fantastic windows, and it is so easy on the earth. Like, it is, like, with PG&E skyrocketing here in California, the house costs nothing extra. Like, if we added 750 square feet, and our bill is the same. Like, it's super weird. And does it run off the grid, too, or? So, it, it does not. So, the main house will get PV solar panels, and it'll feed both of them. We just upped the panel and service to include that house. So, it, it does feed off this one. And then I'm in the process of getting rid of gas and moving to solar on this house. But the whole thing is a little bit better. That's excellent. And especially North Bay has a lot of rolling blackouts for, you know, when there's fire potentials and all that. So that'll be great to be off the grid. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. We're in a wild, wild land urban interface actually too. So to top it off. Seems like you've made a career out of leveraging your skills. You said you're not the Revit expert, but you have amazing people skills. You have amazing empathy and, and management and coordination, and you can really pull a team together. And you have foresight too of, okay, I don't know the nitty gritty of the technical programs, but I know that I need to pull these specific right people together to make sure that the firm is moving in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. I think it is. It's that I don't know that, I mean, maybe it has to do with staffing. Maybe it has to do with management. I think it just has to do with this thing they used to call emotional intelligence. I just got off that whole like Clifton Strengths thing again. But I do think it's like putting the right people together and you can have the dream team, you know, and I've had it at RMW. I had it back 
even at Gensler Gap, there are moments in time that you could feel it. You can just feel it when it's happening and it's going, and it's almost like the zeitgeist of the moment. Um, one thing I didn't say, though, but about what I do hope happens at RMW and everywhere in the profession, and maybe you were going to ask me this, um, that I hope for and I'm going to work for, and we do this in the office, is diversity and equity and more of it. More women in the profession, more black and brown people in the profession, more, more, more. And it may have to tip in the other direction and have this, the pendulum swing back because it, it's been a white man's profession for too long. Did I say that? Yeah, way too long. As someone who, as someone who is a person of color, have you noticed that you maybe are treated differently as someone who maybe like presents white in a profession? And like, how, how do you navigate that? That's a great question. And yeah, so it is interesting because I think we, we had some training on diversity and equity. And I am half Indian. Nobody thinks I'm Indian. People used to think, actually, in a way, compliment me like, well, you don't really look Indian. You know, you look so, and like, and it, it came across odd. So it was always an odd thing. But then I learned through training and reading, I have white privilege because I leaned into it because of how I look. So while I have from the gender, you know, a, a woman, maybe we haven't had as many opportunities, but as a looking white person, I've had all the privileges for being white. And the fact that when people see me with my dad, they have a moment of like, oh, yeah. And that is the, you know, systemic racism that goes on and acknowledging that, that yes, I've gotten benefits for it, but what can I do for everyone, you know, color agnostic, or I guess we're not supposed to be that, but basically, again, it goes back to inquiry, asking more questions, not assuming anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very important. Not to assume, but also to make sure that you're not just settling on, we have our person of this color, person of that color, a man, a woman, da, 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 like just to keep always like searching in diverse places to get diverse candidates yes. and doing outreach. I think often sometimes like a lack of diversity comes from like, I am a, a white dude and I know this other guy, so I hire him and he knows this other guy and he like, you just hire people that are kind of similar to you. I know we do. And I'm doing the opposite thing now. But maybe to my other point, maybe it does have to tip in the other direction for it to right side. Yeah. If you're just looking in the same pool and you're like, oh, there's no diversity here. It's like, you have to branch out. When we were hiring for interns, I was like, okay, we're not finding people in San Francisco. Let me tap into the East Coast and see if anyone wants to come out here. And thanks to you for starting our internship program, like a really, well, I mean, in terms of the robust curriculum, it's still going and this in, in person, mostly this summer. Yay. That'll be nice. Yeah. It helps, especially when it's hybrid or virtual. It was nice to just have like a curriculum of like, okay, these are the things, you know, we're going to cover. These are the different meetings you can go to because- you don't just want someone sitting there all day thinking like this is not an enriching experience. If you give someone an enriching experience, then they go, oh, I, I love RMW. I want to go back and work there. And you've already prepared them to be a better candidate. And then hopefully they, you know, they work at your firm long term. And so, okay, to close out, do you have any advice for women who are at early or mid stages of their career that are maybe in architecture and just maybe they're disenchanted with what they've encountered so far, or maybe they're considering a change. What would you say to them to add longevity to their experience in architecture? I would say, you know, don't be patient. I switch it up if you need to. You can always go back and skip steps. Don't settle. Try to stay in the profession, though. You know, I implore and and you know, or adjacent. 
you know, if you can in some way, because I do think that that's, I love seeing women in design and architecture that actually keep boundaries, set boundaries. I think that's so important, you know, and, and respected. Don't just say yes to everything. You know, say yes to the right things. And what we talked about earlier, get your license, get your architectural license as soon as you can. With the rolling clock being done away with now, I think that's great so that folks don't run out of time, but also have that fire under your butt because the quicker you get it done, the the better you can just keep going up the stairs. You're exactly right. You're already zoop up, up a couple rails and then you go from there. Erin, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an amazing conversation. I know we could talk for hours more. I enjoyed it so much. Of course, I love talking with you. You are a star, so thank you. I appreciate it, Erin. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Architect Debt. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with your network, Leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on social media. Reach out to the podcast directly at architectet.com. That's architectette.com. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. See you then.